You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 66. Today we're asking the question, what is the full story about just culture, part three? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. In each episode, we normally ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. But if you haven't listened to episode 64 or 65 yet, which are part one and part two of this series, you might want to check them out first. And Drew, so we've covered the book Just Culture by Sidney Decker, the third edition, which was published last year. And in the last two episodes, we've been through the origins of just culture in the safety science literature. And last week, we spent a bit of time talking about the difference between a retributive just culture and a restorative just culture. So this week, we finish off the remaining chapters in the book. And Drew, do you want to get us started with um, with the first chapter we're talking about today? Sure. So chapters three, four, and five are all quite different from each other and from the book so far. In the earlier chapters, we introduced just culture. We talked about different types of just culture. And then in chapter three, we take a little bit of a left turn and start talking about safety reporting. I think this is actually kind of interesting because often when we talk about just culture, we're very much focusing on accident investigation. But remember, the whole purpose of having a just culture is to give people the confidence to report and talk openly about problems. And so it makes sense that if we want a just culture, we shouldn't just focus on the sort of justice side of it, we should focus on having good reporting systems and think about how reporting works, because that can very directly influence the type of culture that we're um, after. So if we look at what's in the chapter, it starts off just reminding us that, you know, the basis of having a just culture is it helps people report safety issues without fear of personal consequences and without anxiety. Why do we want that? We want that because that sort of reporting is how we learn and improve. If we don't find out about stuff, we're never going to fix it. If we don't find out what's working well, not working well, we're never going to be able to do something about it. And it's fairly obvious that if people are afraid of what's going to happen if they do report, then they're not going to report. And in his usual storytelling style, Sid goes through a number of examples where it's later come out that safety incidents have been silenced because people are afraid of what's going to happen, and that's led on to worse consequences. So Drew, I like in this chapter how Sydney describes um, sort of in behind a just culture, getting people to report is about is about two things, is about maximising their accessibility um, and ease of the reporting process and minimising their anxiety about utilising that that reporting process so that it's a positive and, and rewarding experience. And I thought that's a really good way for listeners to think about it. How accessible is your system? And how kind of anxious do you think your people um, feel about about using it? So, David, you've had experience in your own organisations with reporting systems. Which of those two factors do you think is the big one? Is it sort of about the structures that matter or is it about the feelings about the reporting system? Look, I think, Drew, uh, I'd be interested in listeners' feedback on this because this whole book, I think, makes the assumption that it's the anxiety that's the problem you know, the, the retributive processes and, and the fear and the punishment and the criminalization that's the problem. But in my experience, I think at least recently, in the last five years, let's say, 
it's probably more about the system itself. And then what we'll talk about a little bit later is, you know, whether people actually know what the company wants them to to put in the, into that system. So I think on the spot, I would say you could probably do a lot just with maximizing the accessibility and and the understanding of the reporting systems um, with your existing cultures. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's, I don't know whether it's a third factor or whether it's part of the accessibility of the system, but it's not just about minimizing anxiety. It's about minimizing confusion about what is supposed to be reported. How is it supposed to be reported? How are you supposed to put together reports? Is it just you're physically easy to access the system? Do you think it's worth your while to do it? Yeah, Drew, I think that's a good thread. We're going to pick that up in a minute, that thread about minimizing the confusion. Because I like that because Sid goes on and talks about making sure that you've got answers for people in your organization to the following questions like what will happen to the report, uh, who who will see it, who else will see it, am I going to jeopardize myself, my career or my colleagues with the report in some industries and in some roles, you know, does my reporting make legal action against me possible or, or easier um, or even likely. But I think all of that presumes what you, the thread that you mentioned there, Drew, which is about people actually know what the things are that they need to report in the first place. So Decker talks about the fact that very often systems have quite ambiguous language about what is supposed to be reported. The example he gives is words like, you know, you have to report safety occurrences. So how do you know what is a safety occurrence? Uh, we've got a paper in the publication process at the moment about hazard reporting. And just the confusion at the front line about what does count as a hazard for the purposes of reporting. So you just tell people these safety words, you know, hazard, occurrence, incident, near miss. And often that sort of pre-classification decides whether it fits what's supposed to be reported or not. And um, so if people don't know what fits the categories, they don't know whether they're meant to put it into the system. Yeah, absolutely, Drew. And I think we, um, our listeners who are safety professionals, we think about these words all the time and probably feel like we understand them well in our career, hazard, incident, near miss. And typically your reporting system will go something like this, report all incidents, and you'll look at a definition of an incident. Oh, an incident is any unplanned or unintended activity or consequence or outcome associated with work. And you go, well, hang on, you know, weird and surprising stuff happens every single day in frontline work. You know, exactly what is, is an incident, what information should go in. And that's an interesting, there's probably an interesting question there that people could do is, Go and ask five or six people on the front line of your organization, what information do you think needs to be reported in our incident reporting system? What types of information? And see and see what the answers are. And if they're not all the same, then maybe you've got some clarification to do. I was part of an interesting discussion once about at what point does something become an incident? So you like could imagine you see a box up on a shelf where it's not meant to be there. Is that reportable? What if the box looks unstable? Is that reportable? What if the box falls off but doesn't hit anyone? Is that reportable? What if the box actually hits someone but they're not hurt? Is that reportable? And you can try to sort of like draw the line here. At what point does it become so exceptional that it is or isn't? It? And really none of it in that case is particularly useful unless there's something that you want management to do something about the box. If, all, if you, the only action is just tidy up the box then why do you want to report it in the first place except to risk getting yourself in, or someone else into trouble? And that, that's a point that Sid makes is that you ultimately, regardless of what starts to go into the system, people will keep reporting the things that you respond positively to. So if they know that some, a type of thing, if they put it into the system, they get some result that they're happy with, that's going to encourage them to keep reporting. And if they get no feedback or 
actively negative feedback for what they put into the system. That's the stuff that they won't report. So if it goes into the vacuum or it causes some undesired consequence, they'll stop reporting. And then he lays out a couple of things that we can do to sort of help those two things. Um, one of them is formal, one's informal. On the formal side, having some sort of clear written policy about what's supposed to happen, who gets to see it, what are the confidentiality rules, what are you know, the limits of what can be kept confidential. That sort of thing can help. Just set expectations. This is what's supposed to happen. And then alongside that is having positive precedent. So the stories that get told about reporting are going to have a big impact. Uh, and just you, I think we've talked about this before on a couple of papers that specifically studied reporting. You just one or two stories about things getting reported and bad consequences can really spread and hang around for a long time. It takes a very consistent positive handling of reports to build up people's trust in the system. And then I think, Drew, the, the other thing that is buried in the text in the chapter is where possible involving the person in the change and improvement process. So the actual reward for the reporting process for them is actual tangible improvements to work and, and involvement in tangible improvements to, to their work. So, you know, we all know that just having a report in the system, even if management, you know, reviews it and does something with it, isn't going to be as good as that direct feedback to the person who made the report, the direct invite for them to help participate in solving the problem. So Drew, then we move on. So so if we clear up what to report, and and that's not a small thing to do, you know, to think about what what to report and thinking of your box story, Drew, I know a couple of colleagues that I could probably have a three-hour conversation with them about um, where hazard risk incident transition points are in your in your box story. Um, but the, th the question is sort of how to report if, if we're clear on what to report. So do you want to sort of run through the um, different sort of reporting, I suppose, processes and mechanisms? Yeah, I think, I think what Sid's doing here is he's basically going through and answering all of the questions people have or struggle with when they're trying to put in place or improve reporting systems. So the re these are all sort of important choices that there's no easy answer. And so if you're trying to put in place a reporting system, this is a good chapter to read in detail just for the pros and cons. And every choice that you make has got cons as well as pros. So one of them is about whether you structure your reporting primarily around line reporting or around reporting to the safety department. The advantage of reporting up the line is that you can get much more immediate and direct action to anything that you report. You tell something to your supervisor, they probably have power to directly take action to fix it. If they don't, they can pass it up another step who has the power to fix it. Whereas once it's gone into the safety department, there's going to be some sort of extended process before that feeds back to frontline improvements. But then on the other hand, sometimes people are the whole reason people are worried is because of how people in the line will think about what they're saying. They don't want to report things that seem like complaining or that will get them seen as troublemakers or that they think deliberately, you directly dob in themselves or people around them. I think Sid's solution to that is a little bit naive. He's basically just sort of arguing for, well, okay, so that's why you have parallel systems. David, I don't know about your experience. I think in theory, it makes sense to have you primarily reporting by the line and then have a parallel system. But the trouble is that if people are really good at reporting by the line, that parallel system very quickly becomes starved and hardly gets used. Yeah, I think um, I think it becomes. You're right. I I think most organisations have this reporting to the line. So so hazard incident reports go to up up the line. Um, I think that sort of tries to follow on from organisations push for management ownership and accountability. 
around safety and that's okay i suppose unless um unless a person needs another way of raising an issue like you say in a parallel system so i think even if it's a starved reporting sort of process i think th there needs to be a safety valve if you like for people um and don't want to use, not using the term whistleblower and, and those types of things, but there needs to be a way for a person to bring something to the attention of the organisation if they're not satisfied with the response they get bringing it to the attention of their manager or if they don't feel they can bring it to the attention of their manager. But th that process needs kind of careful um, thought because they rarely end very well for the individual people who report in those situations. Yeah, I think this is the struggle with those sorts of systems is that if they're used frequently, then it becomes a very normal thing. It's not a big deal. But that means that people are using that channel instead of using line the line management as their channel. And it can become just like a venue for complaining about things rather than actively working to get things done. If they're used very rarely, then it suddenly becomes a big deal when someone uses that system. And, and sometimes more of a big deal than the person wanted it to be. You know, they needed a safety valve. They didn't want three men in black suits turning up next to their supervisor and saying, we've had a confidential complaint about you. Yeah. So Drew, she goes on to talk about sort of these different types of features of, you know, how to report. So whether whether you make in your organization reporting voluntary um, versus mandatory, and I don't quite know what mandatory reporting looks like, but um, you can have voluntary or man mandatory reporting, sort of having a process, I think, there that's non-punitive and where people, individuals are protected. So whether it's voluntary and confidential, mandatory confidential, voluntary anonymous, mandatory anonymous. Like they're different. I think what you said, they're different choices that you make with your system that, you know, people need to understand the, the pros and cons, like you mentioned. Yeah, I think one that's worth spending just a little further moment on is this idea of confidential instead of anonymous. This is one where the book clearly comes down in favor of one of the choices. I, I, I think Sid doesn't like anonymous systems. They can become venues for just like causing trouble if you're not willing to put your name to a report. There's no way to seek further detail or even to provide feedback to the person. So if we're talking about the purpose of a system being to build up trust and to allow free communication, then if people if the people need to use the system anonymously, that sort of shows that it's not working for its intended purpose. But if it's not anonymous, then people we obviously need to build in clear ideas about who does and doesn't get the information, who does and doesn't find out who has provided the report so that people do feel that they are safe when using the system. And then, Drew, there's the reporting mechanism itself. So they're the choices that you make around how you how you sort of design your reporting system. But then there's what does the person actually do? How do they how do they make this this report? Um, and so I suppose this is where we're in the age now of, you know, forms, well, forms becoming electronic forms, going into databases. So typically we get we have lots of categorical information, drop down box here, select this option here, categorize and classify this here. So that all makes our graphs look really pretty when we um when we present our 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 statistics and reports. But Sydney sort of doesn't really talk too much about, you know, forms and, and systems and that, but mentions the importance of things like ample free free text space or voice so that the so the person reporting can really tell their story in the way that they need to need to tell it and I, I when I was reading this bit Drew I was sort of reflecting on I'm not sure how well many of the reporting systems that that I know of in organizations actually let people really tell their story of what's going on and what they think needs to be done because you need a different type of back end to manage that process you need you need a person you know reviewing every report in detail trying to understand it and I think 
we just like to simplify this data too much and aggregate this data too much to to want to have these individual narratives. David, there's a question that I wanted to ask you when I was reading this, and it relates to something that someone raised on LinkedIn after the last episode, which was about where do learning teams fit in with ideas of just culture? And you, one, one point we might talk about this is in instant investigation and the use of learning teams in instant investigation. But I thought it might also fit in here that possibly the whole idea of by exception reporting systems might be a little bit out of date, that the types of things that we want from these systems are also the types of things that we would expect to uncover using learning teams. Getting people to tell stories of work, getting people to raise issues in a safe environment, getting people to ask for things that they need in a safe environment. Yeah, we can do it with putting in forms and free text fields and analysing them. But isn't this exactly what we're trying to do with things like learning teams is get this same information? So that's an inspired reflection, Drew, and the, the listener who, who commented about that. I'd almost argue, yes, I, I, so, so, okay, blank, blank page, and you're designing your reporting system and in, in your just culture environment, you'd probably have a thing that said, hey, look, here's a, here's a channel, here's a reporting channel. If anything serious happens, let us know about it. But otherwise, we're just going to come out, we're just going to go come to every site once a month and run a learning team about or a series of learning teams about, you know, what are the things that's, that have happened around work in the last month? What are some of the, the stories? What are things that have gone well? What are the things that haven't gone well? And have a rotational series of learning teams at each of your sites and that. And don't bother getting people to try to fill out forms and stuff like that and achieve counts and that. So, Drew, maybe, maybe you could completely redesign how you get this information about work. Is that what you were sort of... Yeah, that, that's what I was basically getting at is that all of the things that we're trying to achieve here and all of the problems with reporting systems, I, I think, are solved if we are much, if it's much more normal for people to talk about this stuff that we don't have to report in order to have the conversation. Now, obviously, the challenge with learning teams is the volume of effort required. And I think that's where we need to sort of think about how much information can we deal with. Um, and how much information do we want? You know, normally the assumption is the more reporting, the better. But I think learning teams perhaps show that there are limits to that, that there's a limit to the amount of effort you want to divert to having that time spent and the amount of information because you then just can't deal with everything that you get. But I think it's at, a, at an aggregate organisational level, we're sort of off-pissed here, but hopefully it's useful for, for listeners to have some reflection. But the organisation doesn't have to deal with all of that information. I think that's the purpose of the learning teams or the appreciative inquiry type approach, which is that um, the people involved in the work at the operational level make their own determinations about what the priorities are and are supported and empowered and and that to make their, you know, for their own solutions. So, so the sites would then in themselves do their own filtering and prioritization and, and solve things that are, you know, fit in with the resources and capacity that they've got. So the organisation doesn't need to worry about the aggregate data. The organisation needs to facilitate the process. Um, no, no that, that's a fair point. And yeah, I'm getting a bit off topic because this is not something that Sid talks about in the chapter. He's uh -huh. talking purely about reporting systems. So perhaps the next thing to just mention, and I'm not sure how general this is or whether it's particularly because Sid's drawing on a lot of examples from healthcare, is the difference between reporting and disclosure. So there are really sort of two reasons to talk about things. One of them is about learning, and that's reporting. 
Um, but the other one is about making information known to people who've been affected by what happens. So it's obviously to see how this happens in healthcare. You know, if something has gone wrong in treatment, then it's an ethical obligation not just to stop that wrong thing happening, but to let the patient know that something incorrect has happened or that something bad has happened. And so Sid sort of says we need to distinguish between those two things and make sure that we're dealing with both of those. Uh, reporting because we need to put it into the system to learn and disclosing to people who have the right to know about something. And I guess that applies to environmental problems. It applies to patient safety problems. Uh, I can't see it sort of applying to typical workplace problems where people typically would know that they've been directly affected by a safety incident. I mean, there's the odd hygiene exposures where, you know, you find out at a, at a particular location that there might be the presence of asbestos and you've got, an, you know, you, you disclose that to the workforce, even though they might not know about it. So I think there's, there's some examples that organisations would, would deal with. And it's just, it's, it's just good to understand that. But I'm not sure sort of how relevant that reporting disclosure thing is to how people would set up, you know, the core of their reporting system. Yeah, I, I guess if, if, if you're reading through this book, trying to design or reform your reporting system, and you realise that you currently don't have any rules or section or policy about disclosure, then yeah, that's definitely something to think about. Because it's one of the big exceptions to other rules about confidentiality. Your confidentiality is about who doesn't get told. Disclosure is about who there's an active obligation to tell stuff to. Should we move so on? We move? To, sorry, I think we're both about to say, should we move on to chapter four? Yep. So chapter four, criminalising human error. So this is sort of a very Sydney Decker type chapter where he's sort of intertwining these ideas of um, how we think about human error, how we think about second victims and the people involved and how we think about retributive or, or restorative justice. So it brings it all together in this context of should we be prosecuting people for safety violations um, if they result in you know, bad outcomes for, for other people? Yeah, David, I don't, I don't know whether it's the debater in me dissecting the argument or the left-wing political leanings that I have, but I was reading this chapter and I don't think Decker makes any effort to say that safety is a special case. You, all of these arguments apply equally well to should we lock up the person who's been caught stealing a candy bar? Should we lock up the person who's been involved in a fight at the pub? Should we lock up someone who's been taking drugs that are across the line between legal and not legal? And I think that's fairly common that there are very few people who take a sociological approach to research who don't have strong left leanings when it comes to the justice system. So, um, yeah, I, I can see how people who aren't leaning that way might want to almost skip this whole chapter. But there are times when it has really important reflections about how we manage safety in our own organisations. So maybe if we sort of deal briefly with the social justice side of things, and then we'll, we'll spend more of our time talking about, you know, what does this mean for in your organisation trying to manage safety? So, Jude, do you want to take that off? It sounds like you... Um... You'll hold the first argument well. <laughs> okay. You just disclosed your political um, affiliations and, and okay, thoughts. Sure. Uh, so, so the first part of it is just a general claim that there is a trend towards criminal prosecution in the wake of accidents. Uh, I was a bit curious about whether this was true or not, because I think it's certainly a big perception. I don't know if it's a trend. And actually, most of the evidence on this is quite old. There was a book written, sorry, I don't have the authors here, in 2010. There are some papers by Sydney dating back to 2003. There are lots of other papers in that time period between 2000 and 2010. So if there is a trend towards criminalisation, it's certainly not a new trend. It's something that has at least 
you know, 20 years ago been an active thing that people were concerned about. I don't think that invalidates a lot of the arguments, but I do think it's important to keep perspective that I th in safety particularly, we fear the law disproportionate to the actual risk of legal consequences. And I don't want to be responsible for sort of like hyping up the threat of prosecution or the threat of being sued or the threat, because you know, if that, that, that fear itself can cause a lot of the problems. I think there are some specific examples, Drew, like the captain of the Costa Concordia in 2012 got a 16-year jail sentence that was actually um, upheld on on appeal. So, so I think there are in the last 10 years some examples of frontline people in charge of operations, in that case resulting in 32 fatalities or so, that definitely go through that criminalisation process. But, but they're not they're they're not everyday type occurrences. Yes, and, and I don't think we should be using isolated examples as our measure of how likely something is. Yes. It sort of shows how the severity of what can happen, but that severity can skew our perception of how likely those sorts of things are. And I did a bit of digging as well because I, I spent some time this week with another organisation, you know, at a, at a director boardroom type of level, and it's that typical conversation about the individual anxiety of senior managers and directors of companies um, of large companies about you know whether they're going to go to jail for example if an incident occurs in their organization and they spend a lot of time and it drives a lot of activity inside organizations but i did a bit of digging drew and i can't find an example of any individual manager or director of any public company ever being prosecuted um, at least in australia um, australian jurisdictions so it's sort of like something that has never actually happened that consumes a whole lot of time inside organization and drives a whole lot of things inside organizations that I think are quite counter to these ideas of just culture, which is, like I said, I think this chapter on criminalization, if you think about your own what is driving in your own organization, you'll realize what a problem this is. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that side of things. Um, I think the first place it comes in is not directly about the fear, but just the way that other investigations tend to model themselves on the legal process. And Decker has a really interesting point that if you look at investigation reports, you can see the way terms and concepts that are normally used in criminal prosecutions make themselves make their way into that report. And a good example of this is you sort of see investigators building a case about whether an action was reasonable or whether an event was foreseeable. Now, those are really important if you're building a criminal case. You need to prove whether something was reasonable, prove whether something was foreseeable. That's part of proving negligence. But it's actually irrelevant for trying to improve safety. And I know it frustrates me when I see your front page investigation report, you know, this was a foreseeable accident or this was a preventable accident. That's a conclusion that you might reach for the purpose of prosecuting, but it's not a conclusion that tells you what you're supposed to do in response to this accident in your organisation. So we should be wary of those legal thoughts coming into the way we think about how to investigate. I agree, Drew, and I think even I've seen it um, this year, I've seen looked at organisations' incident investigation processes, and even the, the process that gets undertaken and the, the way it's reported has these things like statements of fact or sequence of events, um, has witness statements. I know of an organisation that's still making the people involved in or the work group involved in incidents sit in separate rooms and hand write statutory declarations about their version you know of, of what happened and compile those statutory declarations as part of their evidence their portfolio of evidence um, and calls it you know their, their evidence so you know maybe that's where we've come from with the using the label of an investigation but it's um is that is that the sort of example of what you're what you're referring to 
Yes, I, I think unless we work for a regulator, we need to remind ourselves that it's not actually our job either to run the prosecution or even to help the prosecution. Yeah, our, our job is to help the organisation learn, not to do the regulator's job for them. And when we do things like, you know, get people to sign their reports that they're giving after accidents, that's just like trying to turn it into this either resemblance or actual, you know, evidence that can be used in a trial that doesn't help the learning side of things. So if we move sort of on to that one and get to the more direct effects of having this external legal system that has the threat of prosecution, Sid talks about what happens to your organisation when the threat is actually real. So, yeah, what happens when an organisation has one of their staff prosecuted? First one is that the law always tries to simplify things. Not necessarily oversimplification, but at the very least trying to resolve multiple conflicting accounts into a single account. You can't run a trial where you say, one of these five things happened. <laughs> you need to say, you know, this was what happened. And so that's something that... In order to improve safety, we don't need to do that. But the law does need to do that. And so those are two forces pushing against each other. Sometimes there can be just direct interference. So legal proceedings, uh, taking control of sites, taking control of evidence, preventing people from talking, sometimes even asking the company to shut down their own internal investigation. You're accusing the company of interfering with the police, in police or regulator investigation. And even without those things, just a general fear of accidentally collecting information and putting it where a future prosecution could gain access to it. So this is where we see companies being afraid of doing their own investigation well for fear that it will generate evidence, or even being afraid of recording things in their hazard and issue reporting systems for fear that in a future accident that could then become evidence used against the company. So I think this... Um, this fear of this this legal fear is um, alive and well in organizations in I suppose most parts of the world um, increasingly you know all, all, all parts of the world and so these these uh, Sydney's making the point through this chapter that these fear of legal con um, consequences really stifle our internal reporting the openness of our um, understanding of what happens and obviously the learning um, and improvement that we can generate as a result so Drew, I think, I think this is a logical argument, but you, you make a point that the evidence of whether this argument is true or not is sort of weak and, and mixed. Do you want to talk about that? Yeah, so, so I think there's two things we need to ask. One of them is about the processes that companies put in place. And I think unquestionably there is a challenge that companies with their safety processes need to worry about legal implications of what they record. But there's also an assumption that people make that this stif psychologically stifles reporting that people don't report stuff for fear that it will make them legally vulnerable. And the evidence on this is actually not nearly as clear-cut as you might think. We won't go into detail, but I found one paper that says that for some professionals like engineers, if you survey them and say, you know, does the fear of legal consequences make you more or less likely to report, they'll actually say they're more likely to report. And the idea is that with the type of decisions and mistakes that engineers make, the way to protect yourself is to make sure that you've reported it. And you, you can see that across a number of professions, that the act of reporting is a self-protective action. Um, you're in things like teachers and child protection. You don't protect yourself by not reporting something. You slightest hint of something, you report it, and having made that report, you're now protected. And so I don't think it's quite clear-cut that we should say that, you know, fear of legal consequences stops people reporting. 
I think it's much more true for frontline operators where there's no other way of someone finding out about the mistake unless they report it. In that case, they sort of fear that by reporting, they're exposing themselves. Whereas to other professions, reporting is a, is a way of protecting themselves. I have had, I mean, it's a sample of one, Drew, but I have had that comment from a frontline operator in an organization to me, would have been at the end of, end of last year, say that we only report, we will only report something if there's evidence that means someone else could find about it, find out about it if we don't, which is like you're saying. So, so I've had I have had one person tell me that that is that is their criteria for what information they put into the system. <laughs> so, so hide it if you can. If you can't hide it, report to protect yourself. Yeah, that's that's a strategy. Not necessarily a very just culture. So, what do organisations do to protect themselves against both the external threat and the problem of people being afraid to report? Decker goes through a few different options. He talks about sort of options for individual companies, also options for fixing whole industries. It's very interesting, but also frustrating because he'll give a solution and then immediately point out why the solution doesn't work. Um, so I sort of came out of it without a clear cut idea of what you're supposed to do. Um, but some of the recommendations. So one of the things you can do is take steps internally to protect your data. He didn't, I don't think he says this explicitly, but one thing I know some companies do is they try to conduct their investigations in a way that creates legal privileges for the data they've collected. So, you know, like run the investigation under the direction of the legal team. So they think it's been collected for the purposes of legal advice. They can protect it. Decker even mentions the idea of having databases that are easy to self-destruct and then immediately backtracks on that by saying, yeah, but you know, self-destructing your own database gets you into a totally separate legal trouble. Yeah, I'm not sure how practical some of these ideas are, but I like the way that Sydney's trying to throw these solutions out into the world. And he even goes on to say preemptively disclosing. So being so open with the regulator that they, they maybe almost feel like they form a relationship with you. So, so I think there's, there's, there's ideas, but I'm not, sure, I'm not sure any of these improve what goes on in your own organization for the purpose of, of learning, because I'm not sure a frontline operator or, or the source of your information that you're trying to get into your reporting system really cares about any of these things about outside probing and things like that. They're going to care about the anxiety and the access to that reporting system. Yep. So I think the one thing that he mentions that doesn't have a downside, it's just limiting our capability, is that whenever someone has cross-industry influence, so you have an opportunity to make submissions to the regulator or influence the regulator or works for the regulator, then putting in narrow exceptions to specifically protect safety data from some types of legal consequence can at least then make the organization less scared of losing control of that data, which in turn then lets them reassure people within the organization. Um, so obviously you can't make an exception, just you know, anything safety related can't be disclosed, can't be subpoenaed, can't be demanded by an investigation. But if you can put like narrow exceptions, then at least you can have some sort of protection. So Drew, let's go, let's go to chapter five, which is the final chapter, um, final main chapter in, in the book. And it's titled, What is the Right Thing to Do? It's very sort of heavy on advice. And I like the way that Sydney's kind of moving upstream, if you like, in, in this book, where he started with this whole idea of, you know, retributive just culture and restorative just culture, the stuff that happens after really bad things happen. And then he's moved forward to what we've just sort of talked about in chapter three around, you know, incident reporting systems and the criminal and, and how to kind of make them work. But then in this last chapter, he's sort of also talking now about how do you create the conditions in your organization, even kind of before the hazard or the issue gets gets raised to kind of make that whole downstream process of of reporting, of investigation, of learning, of support for the people involved and the forward accountability. How do we make that system kind of flow? So do you want to 
Do you want to sort of start talking about some of the things that he suggests sort of before any incident sort of happens? Yes. Just before I go through the list, I've got a general comment, which is I think particularly chapters three and four in this book, if you read them, you start to become very depressed about the potential for doing anything. You know, any way of approaching things has its drawbacks, has its constraints. And once you get into this list, it is very sympathetic to the constraints you might be under. You know, every recommendation starts with a try or an explore or a consider. And they're all almost independent of other things. So you can go through this list and say, well, okay, can't do one, can't do two. Yeah, three. I could have a go at three. Um, so that's how I'd recommend treating the list is think if any of these is something that you might like to try. And that gives you one next action to improve just culture in your organization. And so number one is try to abolish financial and professional penalties that might be might come up in the wake of an accident. This, I think, is fairly industry specific, but you know, things like um, in healthcare particularly, very often there are immediate consequences like being suspended during the investigation or the potential for having licenses revoked or privileges revoked. So having those penalties hanging over an investigation are going to be a problem. If you can set up the system in advance so that those penalties don't exist, that's going to significantly improve the justice. Yeah, and I think not just in healthcare, Drew, I think that happens in aviation. I think it happens in, in rail. I think it happens in um, in utilities. Uh, so so there's lots of those industries where, where competency-based safety critical frontline staff get stood down or suspended or their 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 authorizations or certifications removed until the outcome of the investigation is known. Second one is explore having a staff safety department responsible for the investigations rather than frontline supervisors responsible for the investigation. If people have listened to the previous episodes, you know Sydney's talked about the pros and cons of this. That there are two things we're trying to balance. We want independence and we want someone who understands the messy details so the reason for coming down on the side of having the safety department do it is that they can at least independently run the process and then we can fix the other one by making sure that that process has ways of involving the frontline staff considering the messy details as part of the process so we get the independence by having safety run it and then we get the messy details by making sure we properly involve other people throughout the process that safety is running and then along with that comes decoupling investigation of this particular incident from anything else that looks like performance review of the people involved. So that this is not about judging the person for not just this action, but any previous action leading up to it. You know, that sort of performance management is the job of line management, but it shouldn't be part of the accident investigation process. Yeah, Drew, I think that's those two points there. I might just make a, make a comment or, or reinforce those points. I think they're two, they're two big points. The first, I, I think we've seen this trend of, like I said, leaders are accountable. Um, leaders are accountable for incidents. Leaders should do their own line managers should do their own investigations. Safety roles is not to kind of investigate incidents that occur in the in the line. And there's large organisations, organisations in lots of different industries. And as a profession, we've probably pushed a lot of that for the last decade. And I've sort of, and I did for a long time in in some of my roles, but I've also taking that step to go well actually no i haven't seen that drive kind of the right the, the learning outcomes that organizations should be getting out of their incident investigation process it's time for the safety the safety profession to step back in to facilitating closely those the processes the you know to learn around incidents involving the line and involving the the, the frontline workers but really facilitating a good learning process i think one of the unforeseen consequences of that move to 
devolve responsibility for investigations is that we haven't been able to equip frontline people with the tools and knowledge to do investigations well. We've had to create quite simple models of accident causation that we can teach people who may only have to run one investigation. They're not, it's not something that they're experienced in. It's not something they need to do a lot of the time. And that simplification in order to let many, many people do it in turn then means that the depth of the investigations is weakened and they're much more likely to default into the blaming the frontline individuals. Um, so it was a very worthy thing to do, very well motivated by trying to get people to understand the messy details of work to do the investigation, motivated by having close contact so that the recommendations could be implemented, but it hasn't worked from a just culture perspective. No, I'd agree. I'd agree. Do you want to keep going, Drew? So third one and is to make sure that people clearly know their rights and duties with respect to any investigation, in particular knowing who they have to speak to, uh, for example, that they are obliged as an employee to speak to the people investigating the accident, uh, who they should not speak to, oblige an employee not to talk to the media about an accident. Uh, having those sort of clear-cut, they're not rules about work, they're rules about your rights and duties for the investigation. And really that doesn't matter what else the investigation has. You, you, that should apply if you're doing a very retributive system. To make a retributive system fair, fair, you also should have very clear rights and duties. So this one you can do to improve any system is just make sure you, if you think your system is fair, then you should be proud of explaining to people exactly how it works and exactly how they're part of it. And I think this um, goes to, I mean, all these go to kind of the accessibility and the anxiety around the reporting system. But this is, I think, specifically talking to Sydney's point about the anxiety. So people know what's going to happen if they do report. They know exactly how this investigation process is going to run. They know what their involvement is going to be in it. And they know kind of what the, what the intention and how that's going to be achieved through the process. The next one is build the underlying concepts that you're using for your just culture, not just into the investigations, but into inductions and training. And the two particular things that Sydney calls out is making sure that people understand that a safe organisation is one that openly discusses and tries to fix problems. And so the organisation isn't one that's proud of having no accidents or no incidents. The organisation is proud of when there is something that goes wrong, they discuss it and deal with it. And the second one is just constantly reinforcing that understanding that accidents have complex causes, that whenever something goes wrong, there is a whole system involved and we want to improve the system and the, the root, sorry, I almost said root causes. We want to understand and fix the deeper causes of the accident rather than think that there is a simple single root cause. And then finally, Drew, the idea that to have to implement to review processes for how you care for practitioners and people after incidents um, in terms of those people involved. Yeah, and, and again, this is one that you don't have to agree with anything else in the book to bolt onto your existing system, sections and obligations and responsibilities for looking after the person who might have been involved in causing the accident, not just involve the person who's been injured. So they're the things that you can, you know, that, that sort of list, I like the way you said, it's kind of like a choose your own adventure type list and, and, and match it to the context of your organization, what you think might help. And then there's a, then there's a sort of another set of points about after an incident. So if, if those things that we've just talked about are things that you try to build into your organization all the time, do you want to sort of run through the, the advice from Sydney about, you know, what to do after an incident? So the first one is try not to make the incident be seen as a failure or a crisis. David, I don't know if you could sort of detect where this is coming from in the text, 
you know, I've got my own ideas why Sydney might think this is a good idea, but I didn't sort of see it as following directly on from other things that he was saying. No, I think only only that it might enhance some of those things like the fear of criminalization or the the anxiety of people who can influence the investigation process that might jeopardize kind of like the understanding and and the learning about the incident. That was the only thing that I could kind of tie back into the chapter four. Yeah, no, no, that was my thinking as well, that one of the things, regardless of what the formal process is, the atmosphere around that process is going to colour not just how people see it, but how the process itself works. If the atmosphere is something terrible has happened, we need to get to the bottom of this, fix it, move on. Or, you know, we're in a moment of crisis, what on earth has happened, this is terrible. That is going to colour the whole process. And so what we want to do is make it seem as normal as possible, the way we talk about and learn from incidents, that this is a normal part of work, is things go wrong, we learn from them. And that itself will help to sort of keep that just culture. Um, The second one is pay attention to how the way your process is actually playing out might tend to stigmatise people involved. So... Remember, this is not about setting policy up beforehand. This is about after an incident. So make sure that you have people and even your own attention looking at what types of things are people saying around the people involved? What sort of language is being used? Are the people being able to be reintegrated into work? We've got lots of processes for reintegrating injured people back into the workforce. But we need to pay attention to the fact that people who have been involved in causing an accident are also in an to a certain extent, sort of like removed from the normal, removed from the workforce and need to be reintegrated smoothly as well. And I think that language is kind of important. I I remember a conversation I had with a manager over a set of incidents and it was like, um, it it went something like this. He goes, oh, we had this major incident and it was from a person who I would never have expected to have an incident. And I'm going, well, does that mean there are people in your team that you do expect to have an incident? And then, but it was like, oh, I want to know what's going on because I can't have my simple it was the only reason that we were having the conversation about maybe there was something deeper going on was because the incident had happened to a person that he didn't expect it to happen to. So um, just be careful about those conversations that happen with, with with managers and even your own conversations and conversations with colleagues of the people involved and look out for that type of language. David, I was part of a fascinating workshop with a couple of Italian pilots who were flying as expats for an internal Chinese airline. And and they were talking about what the accident investigation processes were like there. And they said, on the one hand, the processes are incredibly draconian. It's basically, you know, the moment the accident has happened, the captain is held responsible. He is publicly shamed. The CEOs and senior staff get everyone together and talk about what the person has done wrong. They give a public apology. They're demoted. But he said, after that, the slate is wiped clean. (laughs) So, you know, it seems draconian, but that person is now just totally, again, part of the company, part of the workforce. There is no stigma hanging over them. And we were all sort of like struggling with the fact that this process is not remotely what we would consider to be just or fair. But we know that a lot of our own apparently just and fair processes leave people as outsiders and ostracized afterwards. And it was an interesting sort of parallel of sort of like the process and the outcome we want to achieve. And the importance that, you know, this is one of the outcomes we do want to achieve is we want people to be reintegrated. We want them to be back part of the workforce without blame and stigma hanging over them. And we don't always sort of focus on that as one of the things that we do need to achieve from our investigations. No, Drew, look, uh, um, it's an interesting story. Um, I know, look, I think we've got 
listeners in nearly, if not just over a hundred countries. So um, the, the, the national context around culture, you know, the national culture and, and the workplace culture in those countries is going to kind of intersect with these ideas in this book about just culture. But I know, Drew, we've got at least one listener who used to fly for China Southern Airlines and described a similar story to me about, you know, you get a de- you make a mistake, you get a demotion, you lose a month's pay, but then like retributive punishment done back on the team, get on with it. So interesting. I guess at this point, we're probably talking about the same people. So shout out to Luca and Marco. <laughs> no, no, I'm not talking about... I'm talking, oh, really? Talking about someone else, but yes. Interesting. So this is a this is a... At least a story that gets told multiple times in multiple ways. Yeah, there you go. Shout out to all our aviation listeners. So next one is, uh, these next two are incompatible with each other. They're basically a choice you make. So if you have a mostly retributive process, then make sure that it has substantial and procedural fairness in it. And you constantly be asking yourself, is it focusing on the deeper causes? Is it being respectful to all of the parties and their needs? Just because something is retributive doesn't mean it can't strive to achieve all of those things that are important. And at the other end, if you're trying to be restorative, then the things to focus on is making sure you're thinking about who is hurt, what are the needs of those people who are hurt, and who is responsible for meeting those needs. It might not be us, it might be external stakeholders, but we need to make sure that there is someone who is identified who is going to take care of people who need to be taken care of. And so, Drew, then Sid goes on to say, look, there's a lot of ideas here about the investigation process in this in this book and, and this chapter as well. So he's saying that if you start trying to mess around and reform your investigation process, he, he sort of cautions you to be ready for other people to be sus- suspicious about why are you completely changing the way we investigate incidents? What are you doing? Because of this connection to criminalization, because it's probably one of the single most entrenched safety processes that you have in your organization, which is investigating incidents, people are going to watch closely what what you're trying to do and, and why you're trying to do things. And so the, the one thing he focuses on is the, the suspicion is that you're trying to use restorative justice or use any reform to the process to basically get off the hook. And the way to counter that is just make sure that you are seen to be working hard. Make sure that you're doing a lot to investigate. Make sure that you're doing a lot to act afterwards. And then if someone who complains about the process you're using, you point to the actions. You say, you know, this process we're using, this is what we have done since. This is the work we've put in. This is the money we've spent. These are the improvements that we have made. And if you can point to those things, then that's a strong defense against people suspicious of your motives for trying to reform the investigation process. So, Drew, then there's, there's some sort of, the rest of the book kind of fades away into, into sort of different discussions that it was almost like Sydney wanted to make sure it got into the book, but either didn't have a chapter or didn't fit elsewhere. So there's talks about sort of systemic causes of incidents. There's discussion about ethics. There's, there's a whole range of, in the final kind of 10 pages of the book, there's a whole range of different topics that get, get covered. Is there anything you want to kind of talk about at the tail end of the book? No, except to just agree that it's strange. I was sort of expecting the book having made these nice, clear recommendations to round to a conclusion. And then suddenly we had an explanation of the difference between utilitarian ethics and virtue ethics and deontological ethics, which you'd normally expect to see in discussions of safety. It was just weird to have it in the concluding chapter. And it, yeah, there's a lot of stuff that seems to be crammed in there. And he, he sort of come, ties it all back to rev, sort of revising back to this sort of suspicion of systems versus individuals, which I think is the big sort of underlying philosophical tension that we're dealing with, is how much we want to have systems responsible for things, how much we want individuals to be responsible. 
And so as the book finishes, Sid is still fighting to reconcile these things. Um, he, he says, your systems create discretionary spaces for individuals. So there's still room for individuals to act. There's still room for individuals to have accountability. But we've got to make sure that we are matching up the res- how we sort of hold people responsible to how much freedom they actually have to act and not hold people responsible for the consequences of them trying to deal with a system that doesn't let them do things in the way that they would like to do them. So, Drew, do you want to talk about... I dropped a couple of practical takeaways in at the end. I'm not quite sure, some for this chapter, some more broadly. So um, are you ready to kind of go there? I'm ready, but you wrote these notes, so I'm going to ask you to kick off and give us your practical takeaways. Well, I thought, well, taking stepping off from where you just mentioned then about systems and individual behaviour, and I think Sydney makes a point a couple of times at the end of the book, and he makes it all the way through that, you know, one of the, the primary things you can do when is making sure you are, you're always asking what is responsible, not who is responsible. Um, and, and I think that's not a bad little sentence to remember. So understand, making sure you're always seeking to understand what's driving the behavior of individuals in the organization. And I know that the context, the, the systems, the structures, the pressures, the goals, all of these things that, you know, that behavior is very locally rational for the people involved and, and our learning processes should understand why, you know, what caused things to be done the way that they were done. And I think secondly to that, Drew, is just remembering that there's always more than one truth. So he just talked briefly about, um, you know, tale of two stories there's, or and some of that literature, but there's there's everyone's got their own truth about what actually happened and, and none of those truths are necessarily the truth. And if that makes you uncomfortable, then finding out the ultimate truth, remember, isn't our goal. Our goal is to learn and to improve. And so the truths don't have to be true for us to find something in them to learn and improve from. We don't have to 100% believe someone's version of events to find something in it which is useful for understanding and learning and improving. Yeah, I like that, Drew. I think, you know, and, and that'd, that'd be a good way to talk to your organisation about that is um, the goal of the incident investigation is not to find out what happened. The goal of the incident investigation is to find out what to do next. And they're two different things. So that's a good lead into your next one, David. So I think um, continue to talk about accountability when you're talking about just culture and restorative, restorative just cultures, because there's this idea that... Uh, if we go away from retributive cultures, we go to blame free, we go to no accountability, we go to like just chaos in our organization and and we can't have that. So making sure you're always continuing to talk about accountability, but trying to lean that towards forward accountability. So this idea that we can't change the past, the best thing we can do is hold people accountable for what what we want to happen in the future, um, rather than sort of exhaust a lot of time holding them accountable, accountable for something that they can't change. So having that forward accountability conversation and clarifying with your organization that blame free does not mean blame free for something that's happened in the past does not mean accountability free for what what should be done in the future. So one thing that we know for sure is that if you're trying to improve just culture in your organization and you don't start talking about accountability, then other people are going to start talking about accountability for you and frame it in their terms. So why not be the first one to bring accountability into the conversation? and talk about, you know, we're reforming it in order to improve accountability from the get-go. Yeah, I like that. I, I like that. The best form of defense is a good offense. So I think the final the final takeaway, I suppose, from mainly the chapter on, on the reporting process is look closely at your reporting processes and your investigation processes, but particularly, I think, the narratives around them, Drew, which is about that, that what stories are people telling about the reporting and the investigation process in your organization? I gave that example about, you know, the story that goes around is, you know, we don't report anything that, you know, someone else couldn't find out about. 
Or I've also heard the story of, you know, oh, the investigation, oh, that's just the thing that happens before people get sacked. So understanding what these narratives and um, and logics that exist in your organization around reporting and investigation and, and find ways to change the processes that create new narratives and also change the stories that get told um, that create new new narratives. So that's the end of our discussion of the book, Just Culture. Um, we'll move on to new topics in the next episode. But please do feel free to continue the discussion with us on LinkedIn. This is a topic that I think, David, you and I both care a fair bit about and are interested in different perspectives because no one has the solutions. No one has a perfect answer. So yeah, do feel free. Do please talk about this, comment on LinkedIn, uh, ask questions, make comments, share stories. Um, otherwise, that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Send any comments, questions or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.